Oh, Father, let the love of Christ ring out in the world. Let us hear it and praise you for it. Let us receive it. Let us return it, O Lord, with grateful hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The tenth in a series of gospel tales. I'll ask you to turn this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8 this morning. And I'll read verses 5 through 13. The well-known story of the faithful centurion came to Christ. And so Matthew writes, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this, your holy word, preserved down through the ages by apostles and martyrs and reformers for our edification this day. Father, we are so grateful that we have it in our hands Put it in our hearts, O Lord, even this morning as we hear it proclaimed in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is a wonderful story. I'm sure it's well known by most. It's interesting. uh, There are groups in the scriptures, right? There are groups that Jesus chastises. He chastises the Pharisees. Those are a group. John the Baptist said, woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites, right? Always picking on this group, it seems like, right? There was a self-righteousness that pervaded that group. But yet, in the New Testament, there are a few examples of the the so-called good Pharisees, just like we had a bad thief and a good thief, we like to call them, right? There are a few good Pharisees. The Apostle Paul was one, right? We remember the Apostle Paul. Remember Nicodemus was a good Pharisee who came to seek out Christ and put aside some of the dictates of a very rigid sect that he was part of. And, of course, in the book of Acts, there was Gamaliel, who was another good Pharisee. When we come here, generally speaking, we think of all of these relational tensions, if you will, that happen between groups. There are the Jews, and then there are their conquerors, the Romans. And apparently this man led a garrison in the area of Galilee that he came to seek out the help of the Savior. Interesting, though, that this man never mentioned that he was Roman. Jesus never brought it up. All these prejudices existed. Another group might have come, tax collectors. The New Testament isn't kind to them, but there was a few good ones, right? Matthew, who wrote this 
This gospel was a tax collector. And so we think of these groups and then God is able to surgically remove faithful people out of these groups. And this man is one of the great examples, so much so that he's commended by Christ. He gave his own prescription. Sometimes we see that. Remember the woman with the flow of blood. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, touch the hem of the Savior's garment and you'll be healed. But she thought that up herself. She just wanted to get that close. The same here. No one said that Jesus would speak a word and it would be done. They said, come and heal my son. Other people he touched. Other people he raised up. And this one, the man prescribed um, how he would accept healing. And because of his great faith, the Lord complied with the requests of the soldier. And I want to look into that this morning. And so we'll begin where the passage begins, verses 5 and 6. We read, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Well, you can imagine. A lot of paralysis, it seems, in the New Testament. The man is paralyzed. We don't know to what extent, but we do know, according to his beloved master, he's dreadfully tormented. Now let's get an understanding of the lay of the land here. Jesus had just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, the part Pastor Billy read this morning, I'll refer to uh, in my remarks this morning. He had just finished the Sermon on the Mount. And so Matthew notes in verse 1 of this chapter, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. So he's on the mount preaching the sermon for three full chapters. In Matthew's writing, and now he's come down from the mountain, but he can't seem to lose the multitudes. They just want to stay with Jesus. Well, wouldn't you? If you really thought every word he said was the word of God, if you really knew his touch could heal you of your affliction, why would you leave? If you really knew he could feed you in the wilderness when you were hungry, though you had no food, why would you leave? Why would you ever leave? This great incentive to stay. And so the multitudes followed him. And so the great sermon had been preached to the multitudes. And just so we're apprised of, to the extent of how many make a multitude, Matthew offers this editorial note just before the great sermon. And he wrote, Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And chapters 5, 6, and 7 are concerned with the with the content of the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount rather, and the fame of the teacher spread throughout the region of Israel and beyond. And so the multitudes came from these regions, from both provinces, provinces of Israel, north and south, Galilee and Judea, from the Decapolis, which refers to the ten, well, culturally Greek cities, we like to call Greco-Roman cities of that area. And they spread from Damascus and Syria all the way down to uh, southeast of the Jordan in Philadelphia. And so there was this hefty mix of Jews and Gentile pilgrims. And I call them pilgrims because they're now traveling with the Lord. And they would have made up this multitude. Hence the word that I don't think is a hyperbole at all. Great multitudes followed him. And so the multitudes here designated was made up of extraordinary numbers of cultures and ethnicities. All right? You've got to remember, in this part of the world, it's very tribal. 
You know, um, as I was writing through this, I'm going I'm to make a couple of notes about nationalism. Nationalism, love of one's nation, is a purely biblical concept, and it was a foreign concept to the Semitic peoples of the Middle East, and still is. Nation-states are a biblical concept created by God. And by the way, nation-states have borders. They have enforceable borders. Nation-states have leaders and cultures and languages of their own from the very beginning, going back to chapter 11 of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. Some of the hymns of the, or the Psalms, rather, of the Old Testament are actually nationalistic hymns. Just a side note. Um, and so the Decapolis refers to the unofficial League of the Ten Cities that shared a Greco-Roman cultural identity, and they spanned the, the expanse of, uh, of the Middle East at that time. And so the multitudes were made up of extraordinary numbers of cultures and ethnicities. There were Orthodox Jews. There were Hellenistic Jews. Those are Jews that were brought up in the Greek culture, although Jews Jewish by birth. There were Syrians and there were Phoenicians. Phoenician is the ancient name for Lebanon. And from the text, we can see that there were Romans among them as well. And so we can see from the text and its companion text in Luke chapter 7 that this gospel takes place once again in the beloved hometown of Peter and Andrew, Capernaum which was ground zero for Jesus' early ministry. Now, I thought it might be of some interest to you to know, since so much happens in Capernaum, that the name Capernaum means literally village of Nahum. You know, there is a prophet named Nahum. It was a common name among the Jews, but it was village of Nahum. And, it may all, and I would also note to you that Nahum means full of comfort. So it's not incidental that so many miracles of healing took place in the village that to their ears would sound like village of great comfort. That was the place where Christ came and headquartered and healed and preached to so many. And what I think so immediately apparent from the story is that there are representatives present that one might have otherwise considered disparate and antagonistic to each other. You remember they were Roman soldiers who tormented Christ after his trial who punched him in the face, who put a crown of thorns on him, who ripped his clothes off and put them back on. Remember, it was Roman soldiers that did that. I think we can say with confidence, this man was not one of those. And so we see these parties, these, these groups that are almost naturally, almost expectantly um, antagonistic to one, another, to one another. For example, it's not only a Roman who asks a favor of a Jewish Messiah, but it's a soldier. It's not the Roman guy on the street. It's a soldier. It's someone who actually has political authority over the Messiah. Interesting point. It's not only a soldier, but it's a centurion. And a centurion is a man of great authority, as he readily pointed out. He's called a centurion because he's a commander of a century. And a century doesn't refer to 100 years. It refers to 100 men. And so there was this great garrison with at least a hundred men in it, and this was their commander, truly a man of great authority. There's not even an inkling that when he walked into this group, the multitude, that anyone said, get that soldier out of here. Why is he here among us? We don't see what we would almost expect to see. And we generally think of Jews and Romans of the first century as being 
antagonistic to each other. The Jews' friends are and were a proud people. They believe that they are God's people, and if they're any, anything at all, they are fiercely nationalistic and anti-Roman. And there would have been many there who would have, and perhaps should have, despised the presence of a Roman guard in their region. Now this particular centurion, though, seems to be somewhat comfortable in his task of ruling over a foreign people. Who Let's recognize a foreign people here also means a conquered people. And from the text, we should presume that he's a pious man. He's obviously religious. He's a man of humility. He's a man of devotion. It seemed to me he's not only devout, but his devotion is toward the actual God of Israel. He's not a follower of the pantheon of Roman gods. He recognizes the God of Israel and his Messiah. It seems to me he's not only devout, but his devotion is toward the one true God. And Luke gives us a little more of a view into that, which we'll speak about. His presence could well have been resented by his Jewish subjects, if you will, over which he has authority, and among whom he's commissioned to keep the peace. If there was an uprising there, it would be his responsibility to quell it with all the power that he has. And yet we don't see that. We would almost expect that. But he clearly does not despise the Jews. And so it's clear that he exercises religious devotion. He exercises an extraordinary level of personal humility. Oh Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, right? And both of these characters, or characteristics rather, commend a person to God. What's a perhaps more interest than the fact that prejudices existed between Jews and Gent- their Gentile conquerors is that neither the centurion nor Jesus spoke of any such tension. It never got mentioned in either of the stories of the Gospels that we read about this encounter. And so he approaches Jesus unabashedly. And he approaches him not only as God, but as my God. And Jesus receives him as he would receive any of his Jewish supplicants that day. So perhaps the tension between the ethnic and political parties were allayed due to the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount regarding loving one another, and particularly loving one's enemies, which Pastor Bill read to us this morning. They were all filled with this teaching. Maybe those tensions were put to rest at least for a while, and certainly at least for the moment. In any case, the foreigner, this centurion, this interloper in our land, approaches Jesus as Christ. And the Christ receives the centurion as he would anyone in need of divine mercy. You know, Jesus, he could have demanded Jesus um, heal the servant, but he didn't. He pleads with him, the gospel tells us. And so Matthew gives no hint that any political obstacle existed between the Lord and his subject, for he's truly the king. Though the Lord, due to his Jewishness, might have been demanded of by his superior, the centurion clearly recognizes the order of rank between the Son of God and a mere rank-and-file commander of the greatest empire on earth. And he knew whom he was subordinate to. In contrast, you may remember Naaman the leper of Syria, great commander as well, many centuries before this. He came to Elisha, remember? 
He was a leper. He wanted to be healed. And he came out sort of prancing up there with his servant and his horses and his armor and his armaments and was sort of demanding of the prophet. The prophet didn't even come out to see him. But he gave him a prescription. Naaman followed through and, of course, was healed. But this man was not so immediately self-deprecating as the man in our text this morning. And Elisha, though he gave him his prescription, he did not offer him outward friendship or even really consideration, certainly not hospitality. Go bathe in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. Not so intimate an encounter as this one with the Lord, is it? And so if I was to make an application here for those of us those of us who live moment by moment in this politically charged time of history that we're in, if I were to make an application, it would be this, friends. Friends, our religion supersedes our politics, and it must be what balances us. We are not just political operatives. The founders of the country were not just political operatives looking for independence from another nation. They were political operatives who were devout Christians who were looking for dependence upon the one and only God. That's where we've lost the balance, you see, in our nation. We should take note also of other important distinctions from the narrative that obliterate cultural stereotypes then and now. A second observation would be that in the area of this master-slave relationship, here you have this great man, this master, who states openly, I was going to say almost brags, I wouldn't call it bragging because I see the character of the man as one of great humility, but just states openly, I tell people what to do and they do it because I'm in charge and they're under me. But yet he still loves them. And there's no, dis, there's no um, conflict there. He's an authority, but yet he loves. Now, I enter this area with caution only because of the particular situation that America finds ourselves embroiled in due to American slavery, which was of a most egregious type, the scars of which are still with us. And the responsibility ascribed to affected parties is responsible for so much societal tension in our culture that slavery in other times and in other places was not of the same character. Slavery in Rome was not, first of all, wasn't based on color or race. And secondly, it was a status that, that great empires learned to live with for centuries. Slavery in an ancient culture was certainly, in some instances, it was cruel and brutal. Friends, slaves are property, and a man may do with his property as he sees fit, But remember, in this time, a large majority, in fact, something like 60 to 80% of all Romans had slave status. That was their class, their social class, you see, with almost no way to come out of that. And so it was a a second-class distinction, to be sure, to be the servant or slave, if you will, of this great man. But it's also a class distinction that the majority of Roman subjects in that time lived quite comfortably under for many centuries. Having said that, however, the stereotype of the master-slave relationship existed then as it exists now. And our centurion is determined that that distinction would be smashed also. The first popular distinction between Jew and Roman would be smashed by faith, and the second between master and servant would be smashed by love. He loved the servant. The soldier clearly 
loved his servant, and I believe it was that love that prepared the centurion to recognize the love of Christ as a man of authority over his beloved servants as well. Friends, Christ will always love us, but he'll always rule and reign over us. That distinction will never be broken. So authority and love are not antagonistic to each other. What father does not love his sons or his daughters, but yet retains an authoritative place in their lives? There's also a distinction in some areas between the designation of slave and the designation of servant, and we can throw that around a little. Um, In this text, the usual word for slave, doulos, is not used. There's another Greek word called paeus, which usually means servant or manservant and isn't translated slave, and that was used instead. But whichever distinction we refer to with regard to the servant in our text, I hardly believe he was a free agent to do as he wishes, and we know that for a fact he wasn't because the man stated it. I would also point out there's a third word. It's called diaconus, and it refers to deacons who are also a servant class within the church, and they are the servants of us all. So I'm at peace with the notion that the man was a slave. In either case, a cultural stereotype is smashed by the love and devotion this man has toward his servant or slave, if you will. There are two other relational stereotypes from the text that are worth mentioning. The first would be the expected relationship between one having authority and one under authority. It would almost be assumed that a sick child, as in the case of Jairus, right, would present itself as a more urgent need than a sick servant, wouldn't you think? But here, that too is an expectation that does not emerge in the facts of the story. A a person of authority may indeed have an urgent, even a heartfelt need to seek the healing of one who is an underling to him. And here's where the centurion may have another unexpected insight into the character of Jesus. Jesus is a man of authority, which the centurion readily asserts, But it's expected by him that Jesus is also a man of mercy and a man of empathy and a man of readiness to offer aid to a fellow man regardless of his status and ethnicity. Friends, this centurion is a truly magnanimous person. And so I see another point of application for our time and our culture. It's been my experience that most people are easily made sympathetic to the needs of fellow citizens regardless of of racial or party affiliation. Once you know your political opponent and discuss things with him face-to-face, you're much more amenable to love that person and not count him as an enemy. Politics used to be and should be um, a substitute for violence, not the cause of it, you see. I'm encouraged by the fact that Such empathy existed even during the politically explosive landscape of first century Palestine. Perhaps that's why the apostle commanded that prayers be offered for all people, even those in power over us. Remember, Paul commanded that we pray for our leaders. You see, that's the ultimate recognition. Praying for your leaders, even your leaders that are oppressive, is the ultimate recognition that only God is sovereign in the affairs of men. And those in power, friends, even evil men in power are there for the express purposes of the one true power in all the universe. They are there by God's appointment. 
And it's difficult to reconcile that sometimes. But Paul did it. And he lived under Augustus and under Nero and under Claudius. They all lived under Herod the Great for some time and his not-so-great son Antipas, right? And so that brings us to our final iconoclasm of the text. Isn't that a good word, iconoclasm? You like that word? That's a person who clasms icons, <laughs> who tears them down. You know, when computers first came out, we have all these little icons. I'm like, honey, Christian can't use this. It's full of icons. Icons are representative of gods or idols. I never liked that thing about the icons. But I mean, I guess it's here to stay, and it doesn't really mean gods, but being an iconoclast myself, I didn't like that, and I still don't. I still like to change it. And when I start my company to rival Windows and Google and all that, we're not going to have idols. So our, our final iconoclasm is the relationship of truth, sovereignty to things near and to things far away. Friends, the, the God of the universe doesn't note distance. His power doesn't wane the further away something gets. You can't get out of the reach of this God. And this man knows this about Jesus. It's really amazing that he does, but he's well-versed in Scripture, which I think Luke um, shows us more explicitly, certainly, than Matthew does. So this is the relationship of true sovereignty to things near and to things far away. It was the religious notion of the time that sovereignty was a local phenomenon. I bring to you Naaman again. Remember Naaman the Syrian? He came there. Truly, he found out Elisha was a great man of God, the one true God. And so what did he do? Do you remember this little, this little snippet in that? If, if you're careful in your reading, you'll notice that Naaman had the servant take jars of dirt from, um, from Israel back to Syria. Because gods, in his mind, have local power. So if you bring the dirt back with you, the, God comes with, the power of that God comes with you, you see. This man is not under this kind of superstition. Local gods had local power, but he recognizes that the one true God has power over other regions. And the centurion is an example of a man who really understood that sovereignty with God was not like sovereignty of empires, even his empire. And so surely he stood as an example of true devotion, even to the Jews who heard his request. Remember the so-called good centurion at the cross? He said, truly this man is the Son of God. It could have been this man. I always wonder. But if not, then we have at least two good centurions in the New Testament. We can see from the passage that true Christianity has no real social barriers. We should tear them down, not build them up. Paul wrote this. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he wrote that decades after this incident. So the man could not have read it that explicitly. James said something likewise. He said, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. Partiality in our faith is sin. We can't just hate a man because he's a member of a group. In fact, we're commanded to love him. Verse 7, so Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. (laughs) 
He got asked. He respected the man's request. He saw that it was uh, urgent, and he said, I'll come and heal him. Friends, that's how willing our Lord, the Lord our God is to heal. Oh, how willing is the Lord our God to act upon the requests of the faithful. Friends, it is possible, even common, for a person to ask amiss. Sometimes we ask things for God. James says, you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss, to spend it on your pleasures or on your lusts. But when we ask for the benefit of someone else, a loved one, it's nearly impossible to ask amiss. Our asking is not for our immediate comfort. It's for the comfort of a beloved brother and sister. Very difficult to ask for the healing of a loved one to spend on yourself. So a prayer for the blessing of someone other than yourself is a selfless prayer, and the Lord takes special notice of it. And that's the case with this centurion. And so the Lord's answer is swift and effectual. I'll come and heal him. Then we hear again from the centurion. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. If it was me, I would have said, yeah, come on over. Let's do it. But this man understood where he stood before God. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Friends, that is not a pagan concept at all. That is a truly Christian concept, or I should say perhaps Judeo-Christian. God called being into reality with a word. He said, let there be light. I always think that that's a, that, uh, that's a little wordy for our benefit, a so-called anthropomorphism. I think what God said was light, and there was light. I think he called things into being with the name of them, and this man understands that. And he says, I'm also a man under authority. Also a man under authority. Recognizing that Jesus is a man of authority. This itinerant preacher with no home, walking around the arid places of the Middle East in sandals, has authority. And this man, fully armed with a hundred ready soldiers under him, recognizes the greater authority of Jesus Christ. I also am a man under authority having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And he better go. And to this one, come, and he comes. And to this servant, or to my servant, I say, do this, and he does it. No, this man is not a free agent. Friends, it's this whole question of authority that so offends the unfaithful of this world. When you preach the gospel, and you preach that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, And they say, well, that's your opinion and your religion. And they look at it like it's judgmental and arrogant. And how dare you say that your God has authority over me? We so resent this concept of authority in our day today. And it's what keeps us from closeness to God. And it will ultimately keep us from an eternity with God. And Jesus says that at the end of this text as he did the end of last week's text. We're a race of beings that love to imagine that we're free agents and that we're self-determining. What an illusion, friends. I find that to be especially true of Americans. Americans are a liberty-loving people, there's no question. And I hope they remain that. I see that eroding as well. But essentially and historically, we're a liberty-loving people from our very inception as a nation. But we are a confused people. We confuse national independence 
from divine independence. We just want to be independent. And we only want to be independent until we need something. And then we're not so readily dependent. Where is everybody to help me? Where is my government to get me out of this mess I'm in? Or that they got me in? Friends, the founders of our nation strove for national independence, but bowed down to divine independence upon God. I've read to you many times of the words of men like Benjamin Franklin and the preacher John Witherspoon of these very things. They saw it as a defeat of the nation for the nation to not worship God in their political meetings, in Congress, in the places of gathering. We imagine, friends, that our future's in our hands. We don't know what happens in the next moment. And we oppose anyone who tells us otherwise. Friends, I've, I've preached at a couple of graduations, and I didn't make those inane statements that you can do whatever you want. Whatever you dream, dream big. You can... Friends, I don't know that everybody has the ability to bring out their dreams, but I hope they have the ability to live out Christ's dreams for them. We imagine our futures in our hands and we oppose anyone who tells us otherwise. When we speak of independence, it's used to mean independence from despots or tyrants or other nations. But as our society has grown further and further from from God, we imagine that authority of any form is to be resisted. Let me tell you how free you really are. Freedom is an imagined reality, as is security, a figment of our imagination. Friends, if you are safe, it's because God's hand is keeping you safe in this moment where you live and breathe. And if you are free or feel free, it's because God is being gracious to let you feel so in the moment. Such things are not gained or lost by human effort and ingenuity. And these things remain phantasms so long as we believe We're the agents that might provide such things. If God turned us over to ourselves, we'd find out right away how really free and how really safe we are. Our founders, for the most part, were unconfused about the realms where human authority ends and divine authority begins. They knew they were objects of divine creation. Our national consciousness, it seems to me, has forgotten that great foundational truth. And I don't just say doctrinally foundational truth, foundational to the principles of the inception of our national government. We understood we were a nation in the hands of a holy God. Today we're not so sure. We do not respect legitimate authority and the bounds of it as this centurion obviously does. You know, in some ways, I suppose this centurion could be brought up on charges before Caesar for proclaiming that Jesus had that great power. If you think about it, right? He didn't go to Caesar and ask him to heal the servant with a word from afar. He went to the itinerant preacher from Nazareth. Friends, I'm ever amazed at the Bible's depiction of men of faith in military capacity. There's so, many, there's so much faith in military men in the Scriptures. It's really quite astounding. Think of Joshua. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. The great conqueror, Joshua. Think of David. These military men who had such faith in Christ. They make true the adage that there really are no atheists in foxholes. And so sometimes it seems to me the Lord gives us a foxhole so that we can get in and exercise 
the faith that we need to have toward him. When life and limb are on the line, our best hope is not in the strength of arms or storehouse of weaponry, friends. Our lives are in the hand of an omnipotent God, as are our freedoms, as is our personal and national security. And it takes but a word from the one true God to accomplish these ends or to demolish them. With a word, the Lord may win a battle, or he may throw an army to the wind and the whims of its enemies, and we have the Bible record to confirm that for us, don't we? So this man, he not only knows this, but he's ardently aware that Jesus is that authority, that he is the Jehovah who called the world into being. It seems he knows this. And so the centurion demonstrates his faith, which is informed also by worldly experience. He knows how authority operates. And he's a man comfortable with the exercise of authority. He knows what men under his personal authority, what he should expect from them. He's also familiar with the Jewish faith. How do we know this? Luke gives this depiction of the same man. When the people standing by hear the centurion's request, they say this in Luke's depiction. It says the people standing by, that's the Jews standing by, they said they begged Jesus earnestly saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. I dare say the man was a converted Jew. I dare say he was a completed Jew. He found faith in Christ. It seems to me the man knows that it could Inhibit the ministry of Jesus and give fuel to his detractors if Jesus was to go into his house, the house of a Gentile. And so he frees the Lord from this responsibility. In doing so, however, he demonstrates the fullness of his faith. In the same sentence, he demonstrates his own humility, i.e. his unworthiness, and at the same time his understanding of the deity of Christ. He knows he's standing before God. Unlike so many of Jesus' Jewish detractors, this man is not offended that Jesus makes himself God. Remember the Pharisees were offended by that? Remember they said this in the Gospel of John, or we read this, the Jews sought all the more to kill Jesus because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his Father, making himself equal to God. That offended them. Does it offend you? Blessed is he who is not offended because of me, Jesus said. Is it any wonder that even the Lord marveled at the faith of this man? We should have such faith. There is in this verse a hint of the man's understanding of the nature of the God of Israel. In the first place, he has no compunction to question the authority of Jesus. He sees the healing. He's witnessed the healing. He knows firsthand that Jesus is the Lord of health and healing. He's familiar with the scriptures, as we can see. He built a synagogue, and the Jews love him. For what other tradition has a God who simply speaks reality into being? I'll tell you, there is no other tradition with such a God. In every other tradition, creation preceded their gods. It was just always here. And that's really what paganism means. It means the earth. It refers to a reverence for the earth, which creates all things. But not in the Hebrew tradition. In the Hebrew tradition, we have a God who comes out of eternity, and there is no material present. He creates the very material that make up the cosmos. Our God is truly the great God of creation. 
And the centurion understands this. So this soldier is a man under authority, and he can see those in his immediate presence who are under his authority and at the same time under his love and protection. And he can see them respond to the authority that they respect. He says, I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to the servant, do this, and he does it. And yet at the same time, though he has authority, they recognize his love and protection. Here he is protecting a beloved servant who he could have treated as a piece of property and just bought himself another one. But it was one man's love for another, very likely inspired by the teachings of Christ, very likely from the Sermon on the Mount. He's learned from observation that the world operates in certain ways. And friends, Jesus chastised some onlookers for not understanding the operations of the world that reveal spiritual secrets. He said, hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Friends, Jesus expects us to discern the signs of the times. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, if I told you earthly things that you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Friends, this present evil world is a marred model of the world to come. But still it's God's creation. And still this sin-cursed world is filled with lessons to teach and wisdom to offer. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The psalmist said, This man was faithful enough to learn from the operations in the physical world that relate to the spiritual. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. In other words, friends, I've not found faith where I might reasonably have expected to find it. That would be like saying, I have not found such great faith as yours, not even in the church of God. That's basically a modern version of what Jesus is saying there. Faith emerges in the most extraordinary ways and in the most unlikely places. Faith, like love, is known by its actions. It can never be a mere profession. It is an active force. It always is demonstrated by actions. The lexicon says this. I'll quote from the lexicon. Pistis is the word for faith. Pistuo is the verb. Number one, a firm conviction of God's revelational truth. Well, of course, that's part of it. And number two, it's action. A personal surrender to Him. And number three, action again. A conduct inspired by such surrender. And then the lexicon went on to say, the object of Abraham's faith was not God's promise. That was the occasion of exercising his faith. His faith rested on God himself. And so what Jesus responds so favorably to in this man's obvious uninhibited exercise of faith, this is not some sort of new age girly man. This man's prepared to lead other men into battle. His is not a faith that needs to make qualifications. He knows over whom he has authority. He knows whose authority he's under. And the Lord marvels at the simplicity and the completeness of his understanding. And he bemoans the lack of it in those who should have had such understanding. And so he closes 
with this. And so I close with the words of Jesus. I say to you that many will come to me from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very hour. A Father, in Jesus' name, may we exhibit such faith as this man and be commended of Christ in this way. Father, let us recognize legitimate, genuine, divine authority in our lives, O Lord, and bow only to that authority. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.